I agree. Nobody knows. Nobody knows, but the course is good. Anyway, good morning. Hello. Uh, did you see the rugby game? No, you've given up. No, the Sharks did very well. It was amazing. Um, and we have a public holiday coming up, which is really exciting. I, uh, um, this last week, I made use of the public holiday. One of my friends phoned me and he said to me, Ross, do you want to um, come to Mozambique? I've got a house that's free and you can come up there, bring a couple of mates and come. So I'm a pastor, so I know how to take advantage of what's for free. And so, so off I went up to Mozambique. And uh, where we stayed had no signal. So uh, one of my mates bought some data so that we could keep in touch with our wives. And uh, it, it just didn't really work. It would work for a little period of time, then not work, work for a little period of time. So anyway, my wife eventually gets hold of us, and uh, I'm downstairs doing something, and so he answers the phone. And so my fr- friend, whose name will remain anonymous for purposes of this story, uh, tells my wife that I was involved in a bar fight. And... Uh, <laughs> And so my wife's response, as yours would be, would be, no way, Russ wasn't involved. And he goes, no, he was involved in a bar fight. And we had to pull the other guy off him. And he's just telling this whole story. Anyway, I get up. I hear like the back end of this. And I'm going, oh, what a, lots of things. And, and I pick up the phone and, and I say, hey, babe. And she says, hi. And then signal goes. There's just nothing. Hello, babe. Hey, hey, nothing's happening. Then we can't pick up the call, but about an hour later, I saw that there were 14 missed calls <laughs> straight afterwards. So anyway, I, I get back home, and um, I still haven't chatted to my wife. Well, as I cross the border, I, I phone her, and uh, it was an interesting conversation. But uh, so I asked her, I said, what happened? What was the story you told yourself, because let's face it, we all tell ourselves stories when information's missing, huh? What was the story you told yourself? So she says, says well, the story kind of went something like this. You, you went to a restaurant to, to have something to eat, and then in Ponta, like a restaurant and a bar is kind of the same thing. And, and you, you went there, and you saw probably an old friend of yours or an ex-girlfriend and, and then she goes, from Zimbabwe. I, I, don't know, I don't know why my Zimbabwe past always gets brought into it, or every time. From Zimbabwe, you, gave, you went and gave her a hug because you're overly friendly at the best of times. That's how she's going. She's just like stabbing, bang, bang, bang. And, and then she says, and then her boyfriend or husband or something took offense because he'd had too many R&Rs. If you don't know what those are, just stay naive. Too many, too many of those. And he came and hit you. And then she went, and after I'd thought about it for a while, I figured you deserved it. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you the story. Some of you worried. I didn't get into a bar fight. I'm absolutely fine. Nothing happened. It was a story. Someone came to me after the service and go, did you get hit? <laughs> no. But here's the point I want to make. In the space of uncertainty, we will always make a story. And here's why we do it. Because your brain is programmed to work on what's predictable. Our brain is like a massive computer that interprets everything going on and marks a plan. 
That's what happens. How do I get out if there's a fire? Like we've got a plan. It just kicks into action. Our brain is constantly making a plan. In fact, we get on a dopamine high by understanding the predictable behaviors around us and, and mastering them. That's why if you, if you watch your kids, if you've got kids, if you watch them playing games on a computer, you realize they're getting addictive. Here's why, addicted. Here's why they're addicted. Because what happens in the game is that there are a series of events that consistently repeat themselves. They're very predictable. And your kid learns how to master the predictable events. And every time he masters the predictable events, dopamine goes into his brain and he gets a high. Or she gets a high. And this is how we get addicted to stuff. Our brains are designed to understand, to feel comfortable with predictable situations and then thrive in them. On the flip side, our brains die in uncertainty. We go into meltdown stress. So they did this, this research a few years ago. I wish I was involved in the research things. I mean, this is so fun. What they decided to do is they put a computer game together. In the computer game, you had a shock thing attached to your hand. And basically, you had to choose the rock that you turn over. And if you turned over the wrong rock, there would be a snake under, and then you'd get zapped. Like, I'd put so many people onto this. I mean, it's just, imagine how much fun. Anyway, so what would, what would happen is that after a few goes, the players quickly learned which rocks had snakes under and which didn't. And so they started getting into it. And then the computer software was programmed so that it would start getting faulty. So that one looked like that one, but it didn't. There was a snake under. And then what happened is as, as it got more and more to 50, 50, whether there's a snake under or not, people's stress levels went flying up. Cortisol started getting released into their brains. They started getting max stressed. They were, they were max stressed at 50% chance of getting it right, predictability. What the players said is they would rather know that they were going to get it wrong and get zapped than not know and get zapped. Now, you think this is nuts, but let me, let me tell you how this plays out. You ever late for a meeting or you, you're 50-50? You might make the meeting, you might not. What do you feel? Stress. If you're way late for that meeting and you're stuck in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, what do you feel? No stress. You're late. There's nothing you can do about it. You're busy making up your excuse as to how you're going to get, what you're going to say when you get there. Like, there's nothing to worry about. We would prefer a bad outcome that we can control rather than a potentially bad outcome that we can't control. It's how the brain works. Now, let me tell you how this all plays out and why I'm telling you this long story about how your brain works. We're living in a country that is so uncertain. It is so difficult to get your handle on the complexity that is happening in our country. In one moment, we get headlines around farm murders and junk status and corruption left, right, and center, and this one saying this about this one, and this one saying that about that one. We, we get bombarded with this, 
And then on the next front, we find out that South Africa is in the top 25 countries to invest in, in terms of in independent, the FDI. We find out things like this. Our GDP is 2.5 times bigger than it was in 94. HIV infections have gone down 60% since 1996. The murder rate is down 50% from what it was in 94. These are, these are like mixed signals. What your brain does with mixed signals is goes into panic. Okay? Now, remember in the beginning I said, when you're uncertain, you tell yourself a story. You can just say that. I tell myself a story. Let me prove this to you. Have you ever found someone um, who will tell you, based on very limited knowledge, exactly what's happening in South Africa and how bad it is and what they're going to do about it. And they are utterly convinced about it. Some of you are in this room, feel convicted. Here's what's going on. One, you are very uncertain. Your brain needs to make sense of this. And the worst possible outcome, at least you can plan for. That's what's going on. And so people make convictions on limited knowledge and actually make the worst decisions possible on limited knowledge. They found in the game, when people got into the, I don't know what's gonna happen, high levels of uncertainty, they made worse decisions than at any other time in the game. And South Africa is full of people like that right now. And so I'm gonna preach about how you live in uncertainty. But in order to do that, I need to shift how you're feeling right now because you're looking so nervous about what I'm about to say. I want you to say this, to, say this out loud. I want you to say, I want to be fruitful where God has placed me. Can we do that? Oh, you see, in the, in the eight o'clock, I had to like say it three times before that's said. You just, you're there already. And Jesus, I pray that you anoint me to speak and shape the congregation into where you're leading them. And I ask God that your word comes to life in people's hearts, and that they leave here with a sense of confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to tell you one of the most bizarre stories in Scripture. It's about 460 B.C. It's the story of Esther. And at about 460 B.C., a guy by the name of Artaxerxes becomes king. His dad, Xerxes, was king of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire extended from India through to Ethiopia, about 127 what they called provinces, actually nations, big empire. He becomes king, but his road to becoming king is quite complex. His brothers go for government, some of the generals try to become king. Everyone's kind of fighting for, for the title. Artaxerxes becomes king, and as soon as he establishes his rule over 127 nations, over his brothers and everybody else, he decides to have a party. But not like a party like some of you. I know some of you, you dodgy, you party hard. Uh, not like that. He parties for 180 days straight. I know, some of you are impressed. You're going like... <laughs> 180 days of drinking, feasting, shows, 180 days. But it gets more bizarre because on the last seven days, he takes it up a notch. It's like, I don't know what they were doing before, but they, he just ups it. Like, let's just get more wine. I don't know. And, and he takes it up a notch so that it's... It, 
people are utterly wasted. At that stage, now anybody, even an absolute idiot, knows not to do this with his wife. At that stage, he goes, let's get my wife, because she's so beautiful, I'm going to parade her around all my drunken mates. Like, none of you monkeys would do that. Like, nobody is there. You're never going to do that. This is what he does. And Vashti, she says, no thanks, I'm not coming nothing, nowhere near you or your mates right now. And so he has a chat to his mates, divorces her, and then sends out officers across the 127 provinces or nations to find virgins who are beautiful so that they can have one night with the king and he can choose his next wife, as you do. <laughs> I'm telling you this story because I want you to get into the mind of the writer. The writer wants you to know that this is not a good king. This is an egotistical maniac. The writer wants you to know that this is not a good nation. This is a nation at the pinnacle of its power. It's corrupt, it's debaucherous, and it's on its way out. The writer wants you to understand that whatever mess you're in, it's nothing like this. This is the start of the story. And into this context, we get our heroes. So we get Esther. I've got a picture of her. She probably didn't look like that because she was Jewish, but regardless, she, that's from One Night to the King, brilliant movie, you must watch it if you can. She is probably somewhere between 14 and 17 years old. So she's very young, very brave, very beautiful. Then we get Mordecai, who's an all-round good guy. <laughs> Mordecai adopts Esther because she's, her parents die, and he raises her. Very wise man, becomes incredible, actually, in this story. And then we get, by the way, Mordecai, go back. Mordecai, he, um, he catches the king's, he goes to visit Esther the one day, and overhears the bodyguards telling, having a discussion about killing the king, and he tells Esther, and, and through that, saves the king. Then we have the bad guy, Haman, I was looking at this, and you just realize, like, some actors are doomed to be the bad guy everywhere they go. It's just, it's, it's rough. Haman is a, a Malachite. He is the great, 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 great grandson of Agag, who Saul should have killed. Samuel eventually killed him. He, from the start, hates the Israelites. He has one desire, wipe out the Israelites. Now, this, this guy, Haman, he rises up to be number two in power in all of the Persian Empire. So he's a very wealthy, very powerful guy. What he does is he goes to the king and he says to him, there is a nation amongst you, not knowing that Esther's a Jew, there is a nation amongst you who are disruptive to the nation, the Persians and the Medes, and we need to take them out. In fact, they are so bad for the nation that I will personally fund taking them out. The king kind of goes, ah, if you think so, signs a decree. The decree is that on a certain date, everybody throughout the empire of Persia will take out Jews. It's a mass genocide. This is where we start to find ourselves in what I believe is an inspired piece of writing to help us understand uncertainty. I know you stressed about load shedding and rubbish burning, but compared to this, it's not even a glimpse of uncertainty. Mordecai sees the situation for what it is, 
And so he comes to Esther, he tells her what's happened, and he, he pleads with her. He says, go and speak to the king. Go and intercede for us, for the Jews. And Esther responds, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. I want you to just play this thing out. Here's this young girl, 14 to 17. Just think through the story of her life. She's raised by Mordecai. One day, an officer comes to her and he says, you're beautiful, you're coming with me. She gets pulled into the king's palace where she is, basically goes on a long spa treatment. That's basically what happens. All leading to one night with the king. She has her night with the king. At the end of the night with the king, the king says, you're the next queen. She's married instantly, not like she has any decision-making ability in this, she's property, she becomes the king's wife, and straight away, she's in marriage to this man, who we don't know how long it is before this event, but let's say it's a good few months, she's with him for a good few months, and then one day, he just wakes up and doesn't really want to anymore, so for 13 nights, he just kind of, she carries on. Imagine the insecurity, the uncertainty that she's feeling. She's young. She's going through all of this stuff. You know what, we, what happens when we go into that space? We go into fight, flight to Australia, <laughs> or freeze. And she freezes. She's terrified. And Mordecai says these words that I think he would say to us. He says... And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. It's like a wake up call, it's just shake her out of it. And then he says, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai gives us words in uncertainty. And here's, here's his first point. He goes, God's got this, and God's good. Whether you do this or not, God's still going to deliver his people. God will, rise, will raise someone up. The Jews are going to get delivered. Here's what you've got to know. When you're in uncertainty, you have to base your story on something. Because when you're in uncertainty, uncertainty, you will always make up a story, but you have to base it on some facts. Here's the first fact you have to base uncertainty, your story on. You have to base it on the fact that God's got this, and God is good. The scripture says, if he did not spare his own son but poured out his wrath on him so that you could be forgiven. How will he not also give you all things? God is good. He didn't bring you this far to just destroy you. God is good. He's got this. If you don't believe me, look back in your history and see how good he's been. If you don't believe that, look back in the nation's history. 1994, South Africa most likely should have become a civil war. 
We, we keep going. We get to 2000. Do you remember when crime was happening everywhere, every day? It, it was just everybody was leaving before, because of crime. you remember that? Yeah. HIV. Do you remember that season? Just, it, was, it looked like HIV was going to wipe out the nation. Do you remember stats so high? Down 60%? Okay. Keep going. Xenophobia. Just, just think through this. State capture. Do you remember during state capture, one million people got together and decided to pray? And from there, a whole lot of things unfolded. The one thing that happened was something that has never happened in any other African nation in all history. The government held the president to the legislation. It's unheard of. Now, uh, we could just keep going on, ESCOM, we could just keep going on with the, the things that South Africa's faced since 1994. You might be going, man, we are so resilient as a people. In which case, I would say, you are the most optimistic person I have ever met in my life. If God is not involved in us getting this far and us bouncing back, then I have no idea. You... You see the world through rose-colored glasses if you think that that was just good, strong South Africans. That was God. He's good. He's got this. That's the first point. Second point. When you're in uncertainty and you need to tell yourself a story, second point you want to you make is this. This could be the opportunity of a lifetime. Mordecai says to her, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now Christians don't really get this or believe this, but uh, you were made for darkness. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> you were made for problems. You're a Christian? You were born again to be a solution. You were born again to be light in the darkness. You were made for a problem which is really awesome because it means you're useful. Some of you are like, hmm. <laughs> You've got to get this. Because some of you are in business and you've got yourself into uncertainty and your brain has got to a place of, I'm shutting down. And you've got to know that you're a solution in that business. You're a solution in your workplace. You're a solution in your family. There is the creativity of God. There is the manifest wisdom of God. There are answers. There's prophecy of God. There's, you're a solution. You carry a solution. This is how people make money. When everybody else is stressed out and can't think because they're in so much uncertainty, some guy goes, freak, look at that problem. This is awesome. I'm going to make a solution happen and get really rich. Christians should think like that the whole time. We are a solution, which means you walk into situations going, okay, God, how are we going to be a solution today? This is what Mordecai says to Esther. He says, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is how we should think. Esther then responds. She's, she's incredible, this woman. She, she, she kind of goes, okay, I'm in. I believe you, God's got this. 
And I believe you that I'm called for such a time as this. I'm in. But I'm not doing it in my own strength. And so she says this. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan or Susa and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will, likewise, will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. You know, I meet a lot of Christians who have this conversation with me. If the government, da, 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 I'm out. If the gets to here, I'm going. If this, Esther gets to the place where she goes, I'm going to do what God calls me to do, and if I die, I die. Let me tell you why it's so important. And, and Christians, you have to get this. If we're going to change the world, it's going to be because we're so submitted to the will of God that he can use us. Remember in the beginning you started, you said it, you said, I want to be fruitful where I'm placed. I was tricking you to get you to this point. <laughs> Fasting and prayer, which is what she's calling them to, is not a manipulative tool to twist God's arm to do what you want. Fasting and prayer is a tool to move you out of self-sufficiency into God's will for my life. When you fast and pray, what you do is you align your head with heaven. You go, I'm changing how I think to better me, and I'm going to move into how God thinks so that I can expand the kingdom. I shift my space. This is why we're fasting and praying on Tuesday. It's not because we're going to try and twist God's arm. It's because we're going, God, we humble ourselves. We're going to submit to you, and we believe that you will move. Now, in the story of Esther, they start fasting and praying. And as they're fasting and praying, the king can't sleep. And so he calls to some dude. He says, come here, bring me the history books. And he begins to read, and he gets to the story about Mordecai, who saved him from his bodyguards. And he goes, what did we do for Mordecai? You know, the scripture says that the heart of a king is like a stream in God's hands. This is God at work. And so God wakes him up. God puts on his heart to read the book. And the, body, uh, and the guy speaking to him says, we haven't done anything for Mordecai. So the king says, is there anyone in the, in the palace? At that moment, Haman, who hates Mordecai, walks in. And so the king calls Haman over. He says, Haman, what would you do if you so wanted to honor someone? You wanted to honor them as well as possible. And Haman thinks that the king's talking about him. And so he says, I would put him on a colt and put a robe around him and walk him around the palace so everyone could see. And he goes, brilliant idea. Go find Mordecai and you do that for him. <laughs> you see, what God can do in a moment, we won't do for the rest of our lives. But if we'll partner with God, he'll move stuff. That moment leads to the next moment where Esther invites Haman and the king to a banquet. She kind of gets the king a little boozed and then she makes her request. And she says, will you save our people? And the king says, why would I need to save your people? And she says, because that evil guy over there is trying to kill us. And so the king walks outside and he comes back 
And Mordecai's begging the queen. He's now right next to her, and the king loses it because he thinks that, Mordecai, that Haman's attacking the queen. And so he's, he says, take him outside. And the pole that he put together, 75 cubits long, just sounds very long. The stake that he was going to hang Mordecai on, put Haman on that. Here's the biblical prophecy. Haman is a picture of Satan, and if we will submit ourselves to God, God will use Satan's traps on Satan, and he will fall into them instead of us. Church, we're asking you to fast and pray with us on Tuesday, and then come and worship with us. And we're asking you to do that, not so that the party you like wins, We're asking you to do that so that the king of kings shifts the nation. But after Wednesday, the next day we're going to get up and vote. And after that, we're going to go be a solution. What I want to do to wrap this up is I want to lead you in prayer. The scripture says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, Repent from their wicked ways. Let me tell you our wicked ways. We, we have judged our government. We have made racist comments. We have, uh, we've used our tongue against our, the people God's put in place. We need to repent. God says, if you'll humble yourselves, repent from your wicked ways, and you will pray, I will heal their land. Church, this land needs healing. So I want to lead you in a prayer of repentance. And if you're not there, I understand. Or if you're not a Christian, I understand. But if you are and you're part of this body, let's stand and I'll lead you in a prayer. Is that cool? So Heavenly Father, we believe that you're good, that you've got this. We believe that you've made us a solution to problems. And God, we believe that if we will humble ourselves and pray, we repent from our wicked ways, you will heal this land. And so we come before you, God, and we say, we can't do this. We submit our lives to you. And we say, Lord, we're so sorry for using our tongues to judge those you've put into place, for using our tongues to speak evil and wickedness and making up a story that is not based on all the truth or your perspective. And God, this week, as we fast and pray, I ask God that you will heal our land. Please begin to work miracles left, right, and center. And and heal corruption, Lord, and, and take that out and bring light and begin to save people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.